in Henri Bergson's best-selling 1907 book, Creative Evolution. Evolution Creatrice in French, Bergson attempts to make his theory of duration speak to evolutionary science. We see a big shift in his work here. If we think back to his earliest work, such as Time and Free Will and Matter and Memory, the emphasis on consciousness, how it is formed and how it transcends itself in creative evolution, although many themes will now be familiar to you, Bergson attempts to extend his coterie of concepts to the phenomenon of life itself, more specifically to meditating on how life is constituted in an evolutionary sense. This is no mean task for someone writing in the vitalist tradition. Evolutionary theory is a materialist theory of the origin of life. Evolutionary theory is an incremental theory of change over deep time, millions and millions of years. And this is very much about the relation of species to specific material environments and spaces. So, on a surface glance, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution would seem to be diametrically opposed to what we have heard of Bergson to date. Evolution has space and environment emphasised over time. We see deep, long, quantified time emphasised over duration, and we see emphasis on external material determinants rather than inner propulsiveness. Bergson, though, thinks that this basic Darwinian picture is somewhat lacking and needs to be supplemented with a philosophical theory. And that is exactly what Creative Evolution, the book, is. It is a philosophical theory which makes material evolution intelligible. Creative evolution itself, then, and these are the themes I turn to in this lecture, offers a fortified theory of evolution, where what Bergson calls finalist and teleological forms of life are consolidated with Bergson's own notion of future direction. As well, Bergson suggests evolution requires a theory of the unconditioned, the free emergence of organisms. And finally, Bergson wants to challenge our picture of evolutionary development itself. We typically take the development and change of matter to be ordered, quantitative, determined and measured over time. Bergson thinks in doing so, we conceal the necessity of disorder, contingency and creativity for the emergence of life. Bergson's idea is that free and unpredictable creativity is a necessary condition of evolutionary change. So, to be clear, Bergson on his own terms is not repudiating evolutionary change, he is perfecting it. Part 1. Mechanism and Finalism It is important to understand what Bergson accepts in evolutionary theory. Generally, evolutionary theory states all beings evolve from common ancestry. This evolution takes place over deep time. The mechanism through which the incremental change of species over time, and indeed the transformation of species into other species occurs, is called natural selection. This means basically those organisms that evolve traits and characteristics more suitable to surviving in particular environments are selected to be the species that are more likely to thrive in said environments. Furthermore, species which are better suited to surviving in environments maximise opportunities for reproduction and in turn the creation of better offspring. All of this, I think, Bergson can accept. He accepts the truth of evolutionary theory, the core of it, which he calls transformism, 
where species evolve over time and different species can develop from each other, I think his problem is one more of emphasis. If natural forms of life are constituted through natural selection, then forms of life will seek out the optimum conditions for ensuring their and their progeny's survival. This tells us something about what life is. Life is a combination of accident, contingency and chance. Okay, you can see how Bergson can get on with that. The necessity of contingency shows that life develops with a view to the surprising and novel and the creative. But usually, when we talk about evolutionary theory, we speak of it in a materially reductive sense. So we say that the deterministic and necessary laws of the physical world, such as chemistry, gravity, physics, strictly determine how life forms evolve. The last point is common sense enough. Heat-resistant bacteria is better suited to evolving on the side of a volcano than humans might be. The material causes strictly determine the course of evolution then over immense periods of time, or deep time. This is what Bergson thinks, though, is missing in the evolutionary theory of his day. Bergson thinks forms of life are not just mechanically repeated, but require an inner development not covered by existing biological theories. We need to supplement the mechanical picture of evolution with a picture of evolution as life developing with drives, inner purposes, as well as the ways and tendencies specific forms of life in themselves develop. So Bergson's target is not so much evolutionary biology then, and more mechanistic biology. And all of creative evolution, the book attempts to oppose transformism, what Bergson calls evolution, with mechanism. In creative evolution, Bergson talks about two existing currents in evolutionary theory, and these are known as mechanism and finalism. Mechanism is the version of evolutionary theory that assumes all things are predetermined. The machining metaphor tells us life develops in a neutral, disinterested and objective way. Here, if everything is predetermined, then the future is closed or prearranged in advance. Finalism, or the finalistic version of evolution, is more of the Aristotelian sort, where a final cause retroactively determines what occurs. The idea would be species have a final end which motivates their extant form of life. Here life is seen as a kind of blueprint with everything pre-given in advance and thus not created. The common denominator of both finalism and mechanism is the idea of determination. Both are forms of determinism. Although I think Bergson would be happier and lean towards an amended version of finalism. Bergson's primary objection then to mechanism stems from the theory's skewed understanding of time, with mechanism considering time, or perhaps more accurately development, as irrelevant. In the mechanistic view, time and internal development is treated as unreal, or just on the side of measurement, as in, it takes exactly so long for a species to evolve in conjunction with its reproductive cycle. Bergson thinks then that mechanistic theories have a homogenizing effect. This is to say that they make specific instances of life, so say, the specific organisms live development, as the same, as repeatable, at all points of time, irrespective of when it occurs. In Bergson's own words, and I quote, The essence of mechanical explanation, in fact, is to regard the future and the past as calculable functions of the present, and thus to claim that all is given. Here, for Bergson, I think the idea 
is that mechanistic theories of evolution treat specific life forms as abstract machinic parts and thus divorce from the very process of evolution. If you think about it, it does not make sense to say evolution works in terms of isolated and fragmented parts. As Bergson puts it, and I quote again, mechanism also holds that nature has worked like a human being by bringing parts together. While a mere glance at the development of an embryo shows that life goes to work in a very different way. Life does not proceed by the association and addition of elements, but by disassociation and division. Here, I think we should note, Bergson is not objecting to the idea mechanism is not instrumentally valuable. What he's objecting to is the extension of the mechanistic picture of life to all of life. Mechanism pictures reality as material organizing itself. Mechanism then is really a form of language or a symbolic account of how material processes work without any account of the process itself. Mechanism then precludes the possibility of change and transformation. And given Bergson calls evolution transformism, suggests that mechanism on the whole does not then explain evolution adequately. Each change of an organism through natural selection over time would only be a reiteration of a preceding species. Now, one might think that is exactly the point of evolutionary theory, to reproduce past iterations of the species at the present. But if things stay exactly the same, there can be no change, even incremental change, and thus evolution cannot happen. How though does finalism fare? Finalism, or what Bergson calls radical finalism, to distinguish from his own theory of inner life, does not fare so well either, since Bergson thinks that it only gives us an inverted picture of mechanism. So rather than life being determined by its past, Bergson thinks finalism, or the totality of life as an in determining all other ends, is limited. Furthermore, his point is that a notion of evolution, where the future determines life forms in the present, is also quite limited, since the future of life forms beyond their span of life, well, is indeterminate. Finalism, then, Bergson thinks, is an inverted version of mechanism because it posits the end as a necessity. Necessity is a repetition, or an iterative reproduction in which novelty is precluded. The following long quote by Bergson on finalism, or teleology, helps us grasp the stakes of what he is suggesting. And I quote, The doctrine of teleology, in its extreme form, as we find it in Leibniz, for example, implies that things and beings merely realize a program previously arranged. But, if there is nothing unforeseen, no invention or creation of the universe, time is useless again. As in the mechanistic hypothesis, here again it is supposed that all is given. Finalism, thus understood, is only inverted mechanism. It springs from the same postulate, with the sole difference that in the movement of our finite intellects along successive things, whose successiveness is reduced to a mere appearance, it holds in front of us the light with which it claims to guide us, instead of putting it behind. It substitutes the attraction of the future for the impulsion of the past. I think that the best way to think about this is that Bergson wants to sever a multiplicity of ends or teloi, from an overarching cosmic telos. If he can do this, then he's able to conceptualize the inner drives and purposes demanded by 
a multiplicity of life forms in order to evolve. Part 2. The Tendencies of Life if Bergson is trying to separate the drives, processes and tendencies of life from an overarching determinism and finalism, then what might this start to look like? Firstly, we can see that a vitalist heritage is still present. Organic processes are not exclusively explicable in terms of physiochemical processes. When it comes to organisms, there is an irreducibility of life to material constituents. There is as such no final iteration of how life is or can be. Okay, so far so conventional vitalistic. Bergson, though, thinks that his theory of creative evolution sheds light on an underexplained version of evolutionary theory. Life forms, on Bergson's version of evolution, hold their own inner purposes and drives, as he suggests, and I quote, Vital properties are never entirely realized, though always on the way to become so. They are not so much states as tendencies, and a tendency achieves all that it aims at only if it is not thwarted by another tendency. For the individuality to be perfect, it would be necessary that no detached part of the organism could live separately. But then, reproduction would be impossible. For what is reproduction? But the building up of a new organism with a detached fragment of the old. Individuality, therefore, harbours its enemy at home. Its very need of perpetuating itself in time condemns it never to be complete in space. The last part here is interesting. Reproduction is connected to the question of time, not space really, for Bergson. And if reproduction is connected to time, so too then is survival. The reason life arms reproduce towards the ends of perpetuating themselves and their offsprings is to stave off the possibility of death. Then, evolution in Bergson's eyes needs a theory of time or duration, and this requires asking how do organisms formally maintain themselves over time. This is not necessarily a question of what specific things species do to survive, as in humans build houses, lions hunt, or birds mate, but a formal question asking what is logically required of any organism to survive. And the essential requirement is that species develop the activity of duration or enduring themselves over time. Evolution requires the activity of life maintaining itself over time. So, this means that as well as mechanical processes, all organisms bear a self-relation, a set of activities, drives or purposes which maintain themselves over time, even if this is to the greater end of evolutionary reproduction. For example... I would like to keep my job teaching you so that the university pays my wages, which in turn allows me to pay for my house, which in turn ensures my daughter as shelter so she too can engage in that self-relation. One might object that all of the forms of uh, self-relation I outlined is still determined by good old cause and effect. Perhaps. Minimally, at least. Still, this does not lead us to preclude the fact that the natural life of an object requires its own peculiar history. Organisms, too, have their own genesis of cause and effect. The effects on a life form do not end when they take place. In contrast, any effects of change on an organism continually modifies the organism. Here, Bergson is offering a deepened account of the meaning of natural selection. Any evolutionary effect also actively modifies whatever is taking place. Thus, what Bergson is really trying to get at is the idea that life forms of any variety are in their own peculiar ways emergent forms of life.
an emergent form of life works within the structure of the life form. So, we certainly can have mechanical replications of past life forms. My parents would be an example of a past version of me. But the relation between an organic structure, my human parents, and the activity of the repeated structure, me, is in a state of reciprocal development. That is until perhaps one of my parents dies or I die. This internal self-relation is duration, or the duration of an organism's self-development as it maintains itself over the course of its life. Of course, this means that life forms do not conform to any pre-existing mechanistic or final model of life. Creative evolution implies that life is inherently provisional, incomplete and unpredictable. Life emerges in the process of living. The thing to grasp here is Bergson is revising the scope of finalism down, I think would be the best way to put it. Down from the idea of an overall telos of life. If there is a telos to life, then it must be derived as the origin, or the originating of life forms as they self-relate over time. Now, this is somewhat counterintuitive. How can the origin be the end? How can the beginning be the telos? How can the alpha be the omega? Well, this is what Bergson is suggesting, is that if there is a telos to life, then the origin is the telos. The origin is the end. Or it's the idea of organisms, life forms, or life itself continually originating itself, which is what drives all life on. The present form of life is a state of things, where we understand a state as a set of conditions or tendencies, which endure and extend past forms towards their imminent future. Evolutionary life, then, is the continual performance of dispositions. As mentioned, forms of life or organisms are tendencies to persist over time. Now, as opposed to matter and memory, which emphasises how the past tends upon the present, creative evolution rather focuses on how the future is implicated in the present. All evolutionary drives and impetus acts on the present state of an organism. An organism's peculiar self-relation, was amoeba, human, lion, or three, acts on the present life form as they incline towards an open future. The open future then is constitutive of whatever formal requirements an organism must negotiate to survive. Because forms of life evolve over time, therefore, the future cannot be determined because it is actively being lived in whatever peculiar circumstance it finds itself in. Here, Bergson is saying that life is only intelligible as the process of being alive. To say a present form of life then is a bit of a misnomer, since whatever form of life is purportedly present is actually changing the life that is lived. This brings about what seems to be an interesting contradiction. The self-relation of an organism, as it attempts to maintain itself over time, might not necessarily act in the best interests of the organism. This should be not a surprise. Evolution is not a streamlined, efficient machine. Which, of course, is Burke's point. Evolution generates self-destructive as well as self-enhancing activities. It will try things to survive. Part 3. Ilan Vital. Spiritual Matter. If evolutionary change stems from the activities of matter, then how do we parse the difference between life and matter? Are they two separate substances? Thankfully, Bergson gives us an example to help us answer this question, and I quote, Let us imagine a vessel full of steam at a high pressure, and here and there in its sides a crack through which the steam is escaping in a jet. 
The steam thrown into the air is nearly all condensed into little drops which fall back, and this condensation and this fall represent simply the loss of something, an interruption, a deficit. But a small part of the jet of steam subsists uncondensed for some seconds. It is making an effort to raise the drops which are falling. It succeeds at most in retarding their fall. So, from an immense reservoir of life, jets must be gushing out unceasingly, of which each, falling back, is a world. The evolution of living species within this world represents what subsists of the primitive direction of the original jet, and of an impulsion which continues itself in a direction, the inverse of materiality. What does Bergson mean with this ship analogy? Well, the idea is all of the particles of steam are not atomized. There remain residues, traces, and a continuance of a vast reservoir of life, as he poetically puts it. In a sense, Bergson is gamely trying to answer the question, what is life? His answer is life is a multiplicity of impulsions, drives, and tendencies. In his own words, while in its contact with matter, life is comparable to an impulsion or an impetus. Regarded in itself, it is an immensity of potentiality, a mutual encroachment of thousands and thousands of tendencies which nevertheless are thousands and thousands, only when once regarded as outside of each other, that is, when spatialized. The key point here is matter works on matter. What the medieval thinkers called individuation, the becoming one of an object, is brought about through the work of matter on matter, where we understand matter as the different tendencies forms of life take. Here, matter is not something that is different to life, which some might claim makes Bergson not a strict vitalist, but matter organising itself is life. The matter organising itself is life itself. Matter needs the activity of life to get going, or to get moving, or to carry out the process of self-relating. This leads to Bergson's famous notion of the élan vital. Élan vital is perhaps one of the most famous concepts from creative evolution. Here Bergson gives us his distinct contribution to contemporary vitalism. Elan Vital is the creative principle, or the vital force or impulse of life. More specifically though, Elan Vital is about the vitality of matter itself, rather than the idea that there is a supervenient vitality which animates all matters. Elan Vital then designates how organisms are defined by organisation, development, growth, innovation, unpredictability, creativity and indeterminacy. The hypothesis is, in the long history of evolution, that organisms' self-relations, or self-motivation, necessarily generates new properties in an effort to adapt to their environments. Bergson is here talking about the necessity of contingency, if you like. It is because organistic life is unpredictable that life evolves, not despite it. Elan Vital creates a vital impetus, which is what Elan Vital means, and it is coextensive with however existing species rearrange themselves depending on their environmental and material needs. This means life is transformism. Life is continually novelizing itself and generating new forms of itself insofar as it can exist. This does not mean life goes on forever necessarily. There are empirical contingencies that cannot be ruled out. Say for an example an asteroid blowing the entire planet to smithereens. But insofar as life exists, its ends are to continually begin itself. Evolution is thus creative rather than mechanistic. In a way, with Elan Vital, 
the vital impetus attempts to offer an intermediate path between mechanism and finalism. With mechanism, we get the dull and persistent urge to survive no matter what. Bergson just does not think such a mechanistic view of organisms as prearranged and determined in advance does justice to what occurs at evolution. From finalism, he adopts the idea of the impetus towards the ends of organisms, even if there is no preordained end. Still, evolution is driven on by the Elan Vital, which puts objects in relation to their environment, to obstacles and impediments, to hazards and contingencies of all kinds, out of which they develop tendencies. Evolution's intermediate and local goals are precisely what enables growth and transformation, since it is the overcoming of obstacles as they arise, not in a preordained way, that allows species to develop the necessary traits to survive and reproduce. Evolution thus has multiple goals, just no overall goal. And this makes sense if you think about it. Evolution does not truly prefer if you live or die, even if it seems that way. Rather, evolution will try or experiment with all types of activities in an effort to ensure the prolongation of the species. As mentioned, we evolve self-destructive and self-enhancing traits. There is a type of instinctive directionality to evolutionary change, not in the sense of intelligent design or unintelligent design, but more the idea of a creative effort of species to self-maintain their life over time. This instinct is what ensures that any intelligence can start in the first place. Indeed, Bergson draws a distinction between intelligence and instinct in creative evolution. Intelligence is actually an abstraction, as it is concentrated on particular tasks. Thus, intelligence is of a pragmatic nature. Those that are intelligent are they who understand the best means to ensure their survival in an environment. This is one of the reasons we privilege human intelligence over other animals, as we think our intelligence offers competitive advantage over animals in natural environments. Very handy. But the problem is, we cannot intuit the evolutionary and creative processes which constitute ourselves. So we are in a bit of a blind spot. And this is what creative evolution is really about. It is an effort to help humans grasp, to borrow a term from Marx, our species being, how the totality of our individual efforts contributes to the prolongation of our form of life. Transformation, novelty and change is thus intimately implicated with continuing, surviving and within living and open systems, which in turn demands we recognise evolution operates as a type of duration. That is to say that all forms of life, even living systems, are temporally constituted. In conclusion then, Bergson thinks of life as not defined by predetermined causes or an overall goal. He thinks of life as pursuant of a multiplicity of directions with life forms proceeding in novel and unpredictable ways. His purpose in Creative evolution is to move the dial on evolutionary theory to incorporate notions of duration, unpredictability, novelty as absolutely central. Existing theories of evolution are insufficient, mechanism and finalism, because they do not sufficiently account for how life forms survive, maintain themselves and exhibit a continuity of life and how they are producers of novelty, innovation and discontinuity. Only the creativity of life can explain the multiplicity of ends which life seeks to ensure our survival. While Bergson accepts the truth of evolution, he questions the mechanistic and finalist interpretations of his day. Instead, 
Bergson, and this is an innovation in his own work, wants to emphasise the centrality of the future, or the propulsive force of all forms of life towards uncertain futures. This propulsive force, the élan vital, ensures forms of life self-relate and novelize and develop their tendencies towards the end of the preservation of life, and thus towards evolution. I suppose, in the last analysis, Bergson was trying to offer us a more generous reading of evolutionary theory, one that shifts our view of evolution as a rabbit tool of self-interest and raw survival towards one of creativity, freedom, instinct and self-development. Bergson wants us to think of evolution as a generous, creative, if haphazard, master. 